I am super excited to be here talking with you guys today. Um, I'm such a privilege to be here to be able to communicate with you guys today. And as Felipe said, I've been uh, coming to South Bay for a couple years now and been volunteering here at uh, Sunnyvale for uh, about six months. So excited to share with you guys today. Uh, as Felipe also said, I was a youth pastor for about eight years here in the Bay Area. So um, some of my experiences and some of the things that I got to do there were really awesome. I wanted to take a minute and share one with you. Um, we did a series with the teenagers called Do Hard Things. It was off of a book. And the whole idea was we wanted to challenge young people, teenagers, that, hey, with their teenage years, they can make a, an impact in their communities. They don't got to wait till they grow up. They don't got to wait till they get old. But really, right in your teenage years, you can do awesome things. And we called it Do Hard Things. So we did this great series, challenged them to do hard things. And at the end of it, we said, well, I want to give you guys something really hard to do on the last message series. And so we thought about it, and so we partnered with this organization called Souls for Souls. Anybody here to Souls for Souls? So great organization. It's S-O-L-E-S for, so like shoes, for souls, S-O-U-L-S. And the whole idea is during this time, there was devastation in Haiti, and you know, people, we were collecting shoes, and we were going to send them over to Haiti. So, but it's very easy just to take all your dirty, smelly shoes from your closet, and instead of throwing them away, send them over to Haiti. So we didn't want to do that. So we put buckets at the front of this, uh, the auditorium, or our little youth room, and we said, hey, there are people in Haiti who have gone all month without shoes. I want you to take the shoes off your feet right now, and come forward, drop them in the bucket, and you can go a few hours without shoes. And I, I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, I'm just like, that sounds difficult to me. You know, how many of us would like to, some of you guys are strapping your shoes up tight right now. You're like, are you going to make me take my shoes off? But I'm not going to make you take your shoes off, I promise. But the response was amazing. And to see these, these students not just begrudgingly take their shoes off, but really do it with great joy uh, and start taking their shoes off and come forward. And I saw kids dropping their Jordans in the bucket. I saw kids dropping all sorts of uh, you know, high-dollar shoes. Their parents are probably, their parents probably might be like, Mom, I need new shoes, you know, but, but it was awesome. And the cool thing was is the adult church all of a sudden was like, we, we want this too. And so I was like, oh, okay. And so they're like, bring all the kids on stage. And so we did it. You know, it was a big church. We had about 8,000 people at the church, three services. We brought the kids on. And, and I swear, before the service was even, before they finished talking, like people were hocking their shoes on stage. And, and all of a sudden, just, all of a sudden, it, real, it dawned on me. I was like, well, this is cool, but there's a lot of shoes here. And we, we ended up collecting 10,000 pairs of shoes. We literally had a pile of shoes that reached the ceiling of our, of our, of our youth room. And it was, almost, it was a problem, you know. It was too many pairs of shoes. And how do you get 10,000 pairs of shoes to Haiti? So, um, but I remember one of the things that struck me during this whole shoe fiasco was one of the kids came up to me, and he looked at me, and he goes, man, Daniel, this is fun. And I looked at him, and I'm like... All right, fun, I guess, but like, it just, it, I had to think for a second, because this doesn't typically, this isn't what we think of when fun, right? Giving and sweating and giving away your shoes and taking your time, and, and we were carrying large garbage bags of shoes all weekend long, and, and I thought, man, that you're right, but, but it threw me through a loop. And, and the idea is, in our culture, I think we have lost an understanding of what true joy is all about. And I think if you ask five different people what joy is, you're probably going to get five different Five different answers, right? So what I did was I got some quotes on joy. I'm going to put them up on the board. And what I did is I went to five, got a number of different quotes from people who are thought leaders in our culture. And we're going to put them up on the board. Can we put the first one up? The first thought leader I got was definitely got to go with the peanuts, right? Joy is this, not having to care about the recession because you're a cartoon, right? So basically, joy is not having any worry or, or, or happiness is not having any worries. Um, I'm sorry, hold on. Let's go to the dictionary definition of, of joy first. The dictionary definition says uh, the emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. 
keen pleasure or relation. So basically joy, according to our dictionary, is happiness. So now what is happiness? And that's where we want to go to the quotes. The Peanuts quote of happiness is no worry. We have George Burns. His idea of happiness is happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city, right? So, so happiness is no drama, right? How about Lady Gaga? At the end of the day, you won't be happy until you love yourself. So happiness is this idea of loving yourself. Uh, how about Ellen DeGeneres? Do things that make you happy within the confines of the legal system. So happiness is whatever feels good as long as it's legal. That was funny. Uh, here's, one, here's an anonymous quote. It says, people wait all week for Friday, all year for summer, and all life for happiness. So it's this idea that happiness is unattainable. And then the last quote, you can't have a quote without Chuck Norris. And of course, Chuck Norris... He likes happiness. So here's the thing about happiness, a very humorous illustration to a, to a very real problem, and that is we, we don't really know what joy and happiness is all about. And I think all of, us, all of us have experienced this on some level. I think if we were honest, at some point in our life, we have all tried to find happiness in something and have failed. You know, maybe for you it's uh, material. Maybe it's like, man, if I can just get that car or if I can just buy a house and, you know, that, that, that half a million dollar two-bedroom condo here in the Bay Area, then I'm going to be happy. You know, if I can only get that iPhone 6, then I'm going to be happy. But here's the thing. Once you get the, the, the condo or the car or, you know, the, it comes with a mortgage payment, it comes with a, a payment. Once you get that iPhone 6, then a year later the iPhone 7 comes out and then you're just not happy anymore. Right? Some of us try to find happiness in relationships, and maybe you're here today and you're like, man, if I can just get married or have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, then I'm going to be happy. Or maybe some of you are here and you're thinking, man, if I can just get in with that group of people, or if I can just have these people like me, then I'm going to be happy. Or maybe some of us it's here and it's just uh, it's um, position. And maybe you're thinking, man, if I can just get that money to start the company, I'm going to be happy. If I can just go to a certain college or or uh, make a certain grades or, or have a certain level of success, or if I can just make six figures, you know, then everything's going to be okay. Um, and the truth is, is that we've all struggled with understanding what biblical and true joy is all about. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this idea of joy, and we're going to look and see what the Bible says about how we can live a life of biblical joy. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in Acts but before we get into Acts, you know, you can't start talking about joy without talking about Jesus. Everything about Jesus exemplified all his teachings and his life exemplified what joy was all about. Think about even the, the pictures he used to describe his relationship with us. He used the picture of a bride in, 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 in a wedding, and he is the bridegroom. And there's this idea that, that, that Jesus, even in his relationship with us, gave this picture of a very joyous time. You know, there's a reason why Jesus didn't, didn't use the, the language of a funeral and he is the undertaker, right? That's not, that's not very, it doesn't sound very good. But Jesus used this idea that, that we are the bride and he is the bridegroom, a very joyous time. You know, everywhere he went, Jesus was found eating and drinking and celebrating and hanging out, even to the point where the religious leaders were accusing him of being a glutton in a wine bibber, which modern day is just saying he partied too much. And even Jesus' first miracle, which is still his most controversial miracle he's done, was he turned water into wine, right? His very first miracle, he was at a wedding, everybody was hanging out, having a good time, and then all of a sudden... No more wine. And so Jesus might have said, don't worry, Jesus will handle it, right? And, and it sounds like a very strange miracle, but this is who Jesus was. He loved to celebrate. He loved to feast. He loved to hang out with people. He was a very joyful person. But it's not like Jesus had an easy life. Think about it. Jesus' conception 
was a scandal. And I think a lot of us, we have this very romantic idea of Christmas because, you know, the Christmas lights and, and the, you know, the Easter plays and they're all like, you know, they're singing and dancing, you know. But think about his conception. I mean, we're talking about a young man who was married to or betrothed or engaged to a virgin and all of a sudden she was pregnant. Right? That's kind of like, oh, you're pregnant, but I thought you were a virgin, right? And then she's like, don't worry, Joseph, don't worry, don't worry. God got me pregnant. It's like, oh, okay, sweet, you're, you're kind of loose and you're crazy, you know? Right? So, I mean, I'm sure people were talking, right? I mean, it was kind of crazy, right? And, and when Jesus was born, he was born into a manger, right? Modern day, he was born into a garage. Um, even his life, he didn't own much. He, was, he didn't even have a home. He's almost homeless, not a lot of material wealth. Um, and even all of his ministry, you see people like trying to pull for his time, you know, there's, there's pictures in the Bible where Jesus is walking and the crowds are gathering and people are just trying to reach in and just touch him. There's one story which I really love and he's, a, he's, he's sharing in, a, in, a, in somebody's house and, and these people are so trying to get to Jesus that they tear a roof off the top of the building and they lower their buddy down in there. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, his, talk about the paparazzi. His life was in demand and even to the point at the end of his life, and a lot of us know the story, but he was, uh, he was hunted down, he was captured, and he died a criminal death as, death as an innocent man. And so we see this picture of Jesus, who is a very joyful person, but lived a very difficult life. And I think for a lot of us, and even me, that's hard to reconcile. And so here's a key thing I want you guys to think about when it comes to joy. Felipe, some water. Is that cool? Sorry, I've got like cotton mouth. So if you zoned out at all and you weren't, you weren't listening or, and now you're kind of paying attention because I do that too, I want you to write this down. Joy, this is the, the biblical definition of joy. Joy is not a feeling we get when times are good, but it's an attitude we choose even when times are not so good. I'm going to read that again. Joy is not a feeling we get when times are good, but it's an attitude or a perspective that we choose even when times are not so good. And so for, I think for many of us, Joy is a bit like a game of Monopoly, right? And I think all of us have played Monopoly. Monopoly is my eight-year-old's favorite game. I don't know why. She could barely even read the cards and she wanted to play. But you think about how Monopoly works. Monopoly is basically just a roll of the dice, and it's either a great thing or a bad thing, right? So you, you go up and you roll the dice, and you're like, all right, uh, free parking, sweet joy, right? And you go and you collect all the money if you play that way. Or you, you roll your dice, and it's like, all right, here we go oh, do not pass go and go, go straight to jail. And you're like, no, no joy, right? And then you roll the dice and you're, you know, and it's just roll after roll, you know, good, bad. Thank you. Good, bad, high, low, right? And I think in our life, we kind of do the same thing, right? We get a new car. All right, good roll, joy. All right, we, somebody hits our car. Oh, bad roll, no joy, right? Oh, oh we got a baby, new baby. Yay, 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 good joy, you know? And oh, we're sick, bad joy. And so, what we see in our life is just this up and down, up and down. And, and this, isn't the, this isn't what Jesus demonstrated for his life, and it's not the vision God has for our life either. And so what God wants for us is he wants us to be able to have a level of joy in our life even when we have a bad role. Even when the dice don't show a good role, he wants us to know how we can have joy in our life. And there's a powerful uh, story in Acts that I want to talk to you guys about that demonstrates this type of joy right? Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, this is, this is after Jesus was on the scene, and, you know, the disciples, they came into a very, very difficult season. Um, you know, it, it was great on one hand because they're telling everybody about Jesus, and, and people are making decisions. People are getting baptized. People are getting healed. It's really an awesome thing, and the church is just blowing up in the first century and expanding, right? But, but the church is blowing up and expanding, but 
there's a lot of just opposition to them, right? The first century leaders are, are um, the religious leaders are just jealous, and they see what's going on, and they, they, don't, they, don't, they don't want it. They're losing their power. They're losing their influence, and it's a real difficult time. And so we see in Acts chapter 5, the religious leaders make a decision. They're like, we don't really want these guys sharing about Jesus anymore. So what we're going to do is we're going to just go catch them and throw them in jail, right? Religious people back in the first century, they had that kind of authority. So we see in chapter 5, they catch them, they throw them in jail, and then there's this awesome story where Jesus comes in and he saves them and, and sends an angel and they release them. And then so the, the religious leaders are like, I thought we put them in jail and they're not preaching about Jesus again. And they're like, no, they got out. And they're like, then they get really mad. And they're thinking, well, you know what? We need to do something about this. So then they decide they want to kill him. Right? And so they're like, we just need to end this once and for all, and we just need to kill these guys. And so the, you see the, the, so then they need to make a decision. And I remember, and in the story, one of the religious leaders steps up. His name is Gamamiel. Um, I always want to say Gargamel, but it's not Gargamel. It's the Smurfs. It's Gamaliel. And he says, hey, guys, look, I don't think it's a good idea to kill these guys. Right? Because if we kill them, they're already mad at us for killing Jesus. Right? And if we kill them, then, you know, they're only going to get even more mad at us. This is not going to go good for us. He goes, this is what we need to do. Look, if this is of God, it'll, we can't stop it anyway. But if it's not of God, right, then we definitely can do something about it, right? Then it's just going to kind of go away on its own. So then they have to make a decision. And so if you look at Acts chapter 5, verse 40, it says this. The others accepted his advice, talking about Gamaliel, and he said, they called the apostles and had them flog. Now, flog is just a word for beaten. Then they ordered them to never speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So, so think about this. Talk about a bad roll of the dice. Here's the disciples, first century disciples. Their lives have been threatened. They've been beaten. They've been humiliated. They've been chased. They're just having a really, really bad day, right? You talk about, I, I think about a Monopoly card that says, you know, uh, you know, beaten for your faith, pay $5,000 for your hospital bill, right? I mean, it's just a really difficult time. And so how do you think they would respond? Well, in verse 41, they respond, and it says this, and then the apostles, the apostles left the high council discouraged and crying for their mothers. No, they didn't say that at all. It says, it says the apostles left the high council rejoicing, that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach the message, Jesus is the Messiah. And that blows my mind. That really blows my mind to see how a group of men can go, something, go through something so horrible and still come out of it so joyful. And, and, it, and it shows us a powerful perspective here. And this is it. If you've got a pen, write this down. It says, choosing joy requires us to see our circumstances from God's perspective. Choosing joy requires us to see our present circumstances from God's perspective. You know, perspective is a powerful thing. Let me give you guys an example. I'm going to put a picture up on the board. Can we put that picture? It's, it's an animal. Does everybody see what animal that is? Right? It's a deer. Right? Everybody got, I think it's a deer. Is that a deer? Yeah, looks like a deer. Okay. Now, what we're going to do, play a little game here. I am just going to very slightly change the perspective and we are all going to see an, a totally different animal. You guys ready? Let's flip the next slide. Oh, my goodness. Boom. Now, if you guys are like me, when I, when I saw that, it was like, it was like my mind exploded, right? Like, I thought that was just a deer. Now it's a seal, right? Right? Here's another one. Let's do one more because these are fun. What's the next one? An elephant. Now everybody, everybody's like this now. What is that? What is that? What is that, right? Let's, let's flip the perspective. 
and it's some sort of duck. I don't know. The last one, we got one more. These are fun. I think I got three of them. It's a giraffe. Anybody know what it is when you flip it? It's a penguin. Yeah, crazy, right? But here's the thing. We can take an image that we look at, and we can make a small change in the perspective, and we can see a totally different animal. Well, in the very same way, we can take our current circumstances and we can change the way we look at them and we can get an entirely new perspective, one, a perspective that leads to joy. And so I want to I look at this. There's two perspectives I see in this story. Number one is man's perspective. Man's perspective is, if you're taking notes, write this down. It says, your view of life is eclipsed by the emotional feelings of your current situation. Your view of life is eclipsed by the emotional, I'm sorry, the emotional feelings of your current situation. Right? This is a perspective that the, the first century disciples or apostles could have very easily had. I mean, think about what they were going through. They were, their lives were threatened. They were thrown in jail. They were beaten up. They were chased. Uh, they were probably, how were they feeling? They were probably scared. They were probably in pain. Uh, a lot of things going through their mind. Right? And when, when we give in to man's perspective, it tends to lead to um, you know, the why me attitude. You know, why me, why me? We begin to blame other people and, and shift blame around. And, and eventually, if it's left unchecked, uh, it could lead to depression. But this isn't the perspective that they choose. They chose God's perspective. God's perspective is when your view of life is eclipsed by a God who has a plan and a purpose of your life. Your view is eclipsed by a God who has a plan and a purpose for your life. If man's perspective is all about feeling, God's perspective is all about faith. Recognizing that no matter what your current situation is, no matter what you're feeling, God is at work at a higher level doing something great. There's an awesome verse that it means a lot to me. It's Romans 8.28. It says, and we know that God causes everything to work for good for those who he loves and are called according to the purpose for them. No matter what your circumstances are, when you have God's perspective, you can realize that God is at work at a higher level. You know, if, if man's perspective is all about your current situation, God's perspective is all about your future destination. And oftentimes when things are really difficult and your circumstances are really hard, it's God at work in you so that he can prepare you for something in the future awesome verse here that I, I really love. It's, it's Romans 5.3. It says, not only that, but we rejoice, right? We find joy in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so God, this is an awesome picture that God uses our present struggles, our, our, our weaknesses, to produce something in us that he can perfect us and prepare us for what he has for the future. If man's perspective is what's happening to you, God's perspective is what God wants to do through you. And there's this powerful principle when it comes to God that he strengthens us when we're weak. And it's only when we can really come to the point that we know that we are weak and that we're struggling and that we're hurting, do we then rely on God? You know, so many times, you know, in our own lives, we tend to only kind of look towards God when things are bad. You guys ever been like this for me? It's, it's true. When things are going good, we're not really looking to God. It's only when things are bad. But God says, I want you to always look for me. Because when you are weak is when you're strong. It's because we rely on God more. 
We seek him. We, we need his help. There's a great verse here that says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, says, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now that I'm glad to boast about my weakness, right? I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm weak because I rely on God more so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and the insults and the hardships and the persecutions and the troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. And so in our struggles, we lean on God more. He's actually able to do more through us because of our hardships, because of our current struggles. And so it was this perspective that the, 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 the first century church had. It was, they understood. They said, look, yeah, we may have been beaten. We may have been threatened. We may have been thrown in jail. But we realize that God has a plan for our lives. We realize that God has a purpose. And so for that, we're going to rejoice. You know, to take this to, on a personal level, there was uh, not too long ago, me and my wife had one of those bad rolls of the dice. And some of you guys know our story. And, uh, you know, you never think this stuff happens to you, but I remember talking to my wife and, and the doctor coming in and saying, you know, it's a pretty good chance your wife has cancer. And when somebody says that to you, you're just like, wow, this is, I didn't expect this to happen, right? I mean, that, that's just your feeling. You have all these emotions, you know, you're scared, you're, 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 you're mad, you're all these things. And, and I look back at that situation and I go, can I really say that going through these last few months that I've had joy, I've been able to rejoice through these struggles? Because this is what the Bible's talking about. And if I'm honest, I'm going to say probably not fully. Um, I definitely think that God is dealing with me in this situation. And I definitely think there's no coincidence. I definitely think it's not an accident that I'm up here today talking to you guys about how to rejoice during struggles. Um, but this is what I did learn. You know, there was one verse that um, really meant a lot to me during this, and that was that Romans 5.8, knowing that God is at work and that he works all things for good. And I remember just sitting there thinking, no matter what happens, um, by the way, it wasn't cancer. It was this crazy tumor that was like growing out of control, and they, we went through surgery and the whole thing. And praise God, we got through it. Um, and my wife was awesome through the whole thing. But the one thing through the whole circumstance, I, I remember thinking was, you know, God has a plan. He has to have a plan. There is a bigger picture for this. And it was that thought and that idea that kept me going through this, realizing that whether we had cancer or no cancer or chemo or no chemo or if she was healed tomorrow, there was a bigger purpose that God was working in our life and he was preparing us for something. And now as we move past that event and I'm looking back, it's so, e it's so much easier to see what God is doing when you look back. I can really now say there are some awesome things that we can have joy over. I mean, one of them was just seeing my church family and friends rally around us as this was going on, bringing us food and diapers and helping out and babysitting and people coming to the hospital and praying for us and people bringing giant cookie flower things that I just got to eat all the time. And I mean, it was really cool. And many of you guys in here were part of that, were part of that awesome experience. And again, thank you for that. Um, another thing was just to, to see what God was doing in me. I mean, there's a real sense in which I've been a a pastor for, you know, eight years now, and just God developing in me an understanding of how to minister to people who are hurt. I mean, there's no better way to understand the hurting than to be on the other side yourself. And so just God doing something in me and preparing me for something in the future is awesome. I mean, I look, I feel like I could go into a, a hospital and pray for somebody with a whole new understanding of what they're going through because of what God has done in me. And just the love for my wife. I mean, I mean, I loved my wife before. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we I, we did. But I mean, when you go through something like that with your with your with your spouse, 
I mean, the depth and the love that, it get, that you get is amazing. And there's a, a lot of other things I can share, but I can honestly say, me and my wife talked about this just a few days ago, as we look back, I can find and rejoice for what happened. I wouldn't change anything. I can honestly say I rejoice for the trial that God put me through. And so my question for all of us today is, what perspective are we living our life in? Are we living our life in man's perspective? Is our joy really just a result of the roll of the dice where we're up and we're down? Because that's not what God wants for us. Or do you have the perspective of God's perspective where you're understanding and rejoicing in the fact that God is preparing you and using you and wanting to do something through you? I'm going to close today with a Bible verse. This is a great verse. This Bible verse was written by a guy named the Apostle Paul in jail for sharing his face. This is Philippians 4.4. He says, Always be full of joy in the Lord, and I say again, rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for the power of praise, Lord, and that we can have strength, Lord, when we give you and we rejoice in you for knowing, Lord, that you are doing something in us, Lord. And we just pray for the people here that are in this uh, auditorium today, Lord, that are going through great hardships, Lord, and maybe they're at their, their end, Lord, and maybe they're feeling discouraged, Lord, and I just pray, Lord, that you would help them to switch their perspective, Lord, and understand, Lord, that you are at work, Lord, even in the hard times, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that you would bring comfort, you would bring hope, and you would bring your love and wrap your arms around all of us, Lord. We just thank you, Lord, for this joy you've given us, Lord, and, uh, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to walk in the joy, Lord, that you have set before us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.